You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. First Kings chapter 21, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us today. Lord, we want to have hearts that receive your word, hearts that put your word into practice, Lord, that are allow it to shape our hearts and our lives. Lord, help us to hear what your word says to us. Help us to receive it. Lord, help us to put it into practice in our lives. Lord, we pray that truly we would follow you, Jesus, on this unexpected way of happiness that you show us. So Lord, show us what that is and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When my kids were younger, when my kids were younger, we used to watch the movie Cars a lot. Part of the reason was because my kids liked Cars and they liked Lightning McQueen. And uh, the other reason was because it was like the only movie we owned, right? So I must have seen this movie like a hundred times. And there's a scene in the movie Cars, if you've seen it, where there's an older car, his name's Doc Hudson, and he's teaching the younger car, Lightning McQueen, how to race on a dirt track. See, Lightning had been really good at racing on an asphalt track, but when he tried to race on the dirt, he kept sliding off the end of the track. So Doc Hudson, this old timer, right? He comes and he tells Lightning, here's what you need to do. You need to understand this. And here's what he says. Check this out. He says, Lightning, sometimes you have to turn right in order to turn left. Sometimes you have to turn right in order to turn left. Now, when Lightning McQueen heard that, he said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You don't turn right to turn left. You turn right to turn right. But as we come to find out in the movie, Doc Hudson was right. There are some times when in order to go left, you have to turn right. See, Doc Hudson's advice and the principle he was teaching him was something that was counterintuitive. See, something that's counterintuitive is something which goes opposite of the way that you would tend to think, that you would automatically assume that things work, and yet it's true, right? And there are a lot of things in life that are counterintuitive. For example, uh, did you know the studies show that if you sleep more, you will be more productive at work. In other words, if you want to get more work done, you have to do less work and do more sleep, right? And that, that sounds counterintuitive. Studies show it's true. If you want to be more productive, you actually need to sleep more and work a little bit less. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. Another thing that's counterintuitive that we see in life is in regard to happiness and fulfillment, the actor Jim Carrey, right? You've probably heard of him. He's been in a lot of famous movies. He's actually won almost 100 awards for his acting. He's incredibly wealthy. But here's what he said about happiness and fulfillment. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. If that's not the answer, right, because that's what we tend to think. If I could have all these things that I think I need, then I would be happy and content. And Jim Carrey's saying, I've been there, I've done that, and it's not the answer. In other words, what is the answer then? What, what is the way to have fulfillment, happiness, and joy in our lives? Well, guess what? God tells us in his word, but you need to know this. What he tells us is absolutely counterintuitive. It goes against what we would think or what we would assume is the way to fulfillment and happiness. It's counterintuitive. But guys, sometimes you have to turn right in order to go left. And, and that's absolutely true. So here in 1 Kings chapter 21, what we're going to see is that the pursuit of happiness apart from God leads to destruction. 
But humble surrender is the key that unlocks God's mercy and opens the door to fulfillment and joy. Every week I've been giving you a sentence, and this sentence summarizes our message, and it also forms the outline for studying this passage, okay? So I'd love it if you'd write this down, memorize it, take a photo of it so that you have this for later on. What did we talk about today? Well, here's what we talked about. The pursuit of happiness apart from God leads to destruction, but humble surrender is the key that unlocks God's mercy and opens the door to fulfillment and joy. So let's take that sentence, let's break it down, and let's study this passage. First of all, let's talk about the pursuit of happiness apart from God. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 17 and 18, here in 1 Kings. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. The life of the prophet Elijah is intertwined with the life of this man, this figure named King Ahab. Now, King Ahab was a truly wicked, truly evil person. The only person who rivaled King Ahab in his wickedness was perhaps his wife, Queen Jezebel. And together, Ahab and Jezebel, their hands were stained with a lot of innocent blood. They did a lot of bad things in their day. And for years, God had been sending messages and signs and, and messages through the prophet Isaiah to get, or prophet Elijah, to get their attention, to get them to wake up, to get them to turn from their evil ways and repent. But Ahab and Jezebel, they ignored these messages and they hardened their hearts and they refused to change their ways. They persisted in going this way, even though God kept sending them signs and messages, telling them to turn back and turn to him. Well, here in chapter 21, verse 19, we read that the word of the Lord once again comes to Elijah. And or, yeah, Elijah, good. I got the right prophet this time. Um, okay, so he comes to Elijah and he tells him once again, go down and meet with King Ahab. And I want you to talk to him about something in regard to this particular vineyard. Now you say, well, what's the big deal about this vineyard? Well, in order to understand why this vineyard's a big deal, you have to read the verses that came before where we started. So let me summarize for you. You can check it out in your Bibles as we're talking. 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 16 tell us the backstory of this vineyard. But let me just summarize it for you and tell you. Ahab and Jezebel, their royal palace was in a city called Jezreel. And there in Jezreel, next to their palace, apparently there was a piece of land where there were grapes planted. There was a vineyard. That vineyard belonged to a guy named Naboth. Well, one day, King Ahab, he's hanging out at his palace, looking around, you know, looking over the fence, and he's thinking, you know, that vineyard right next to our palace, that would be really nice if I had that vineyard, what I would do there is I'd tear out all the grapes and I'd plant vegetables and it'd be like a hobby for me, right? Like a little hobby farm where I'd plant my vegetables, have some organic produce, you know, it'd be a nice way to spend my time, you know, planting and gardening and all that. So he says, you know, no problem. I'll just go ask this guy Naboth if he will sell me his vineyard so that I can plant this garden that I imagined. And so he goes to Naboth, says, Naboth, I want to buy this vineyard from you. Naboth says, sorry, it's not for sale. Ahab says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm willing to pay you a lot of money. I'm willing to trade you better pieces of land. I just want this one because it's next to my palace. And Naboth's like, look, it's not for sale, not for any amount, because this land has been my family's inheritance ever since the settling of the land of Canaan, like back when we came in many years ago. And so Naboth says, no, it's not, not for sale. 
And you say, okay, cool. Okay, so end of story. Bummer that he couldn't buy it. That's the end of the story, right? No, not right. Here's what Ahab does. He's so upset that Naboth won't sell him this piece of land that he gets like depressed. He gets mopey. He, you know, he's moping around the house. He's kind of like uh, sulking, kind of like a little child, right? When they can't get what they want, just kind of sulking and, and walking around the house feeling sorry that they can't get what they want. Now, Jezebel, uh, Ahab's wife, she sees him sulking around the house and feeling sorry for himself. And she says, what are you doing? Well, why are you sulking? You're the king of Israel. You can have anything you want. If Naboth isn't going to sell you this land, well, who is he to tell you what you can and can't have if you want it? You should just go and take the land from him yourself. And she says, you know what? Listen, if you're not willing to do it, I'll do it for you. I'll go and get this land for you. So Jezebel, she organizes this banquet, like this big fancy banquet, and they invite Naboth, the guy who owns this land, to come and be their guest of honor. So Naboth shows up, they seat him at the, you know, table in the place of honor. And then the police come in, they arrest him and they carry him out of town and they kill him in cold blood. The whole thing was a setup. It was a trap. So they could just kill this guy because he wouldn't sell this land to them. And then she comes back and says, Ahab, I took care of the problem. Now you can have the land. So Ahab goes and he steals this land. Now, again, that's stealing because the land should have gone to Naboth's next of kin. So not only have they murdered somebody, now they've stolen land from this family. And it's like, what are you going to do, right? Because obviously these people are willing to kill anybody who opposes them or who stands in the way of what they want. So it's not like you can go and just tell them, hey, you can't do that, right? Except here's what happens. God sees this. And God sees that, like, they're just you know, it's power without any checks. They're doing whatever they want and they're hurting people. And God says, I'm not going to tolerate this. And he sends Elijah to go and talk to King Ahab and say, I saw what you did and you're going to have to answer to me for it. Ahab's reaction to not getting this land, it's a little bit weird, don't you think? I mean, a grown man who's the king of Israel, who owns a lot of things, a lot of land, got a lot of money. He wants this one piece of land that he can't have, and that causes him to get totally mopey and sullen and depressed. Apparently, Ahab was doing something that we often do ourselves, wasn't he? Where we kind of build something up in our mind and we say, I need to have that. I don't care about anything else. If I just had that, that one thing that I want, then I would be happy. Then I would be fulfilled. Then I would be content. That's what I need. I need to get that thing. See, if you look at Ahab's life, though, I want, I want to point this out to you. If you look through, as these many chapters that we've been studying about King Ahab, you can see a pattern in his life. And the pattern is this. Ahab is constantly and consistently seeking happiness and fulfillment apart from God in different ways. Let me give you a few examples of that in just a second. But here's what I want you to know first. Every person in the world, including me, including you, every person in the world desires deep down to be happy. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not shallow. It's not bad. It's not silly. It's what we were created for. It's part of how God created us. And here's the thing that happens. Sometimes people say, people begin to feel as if in their pursuit of happiness, right, as they're, they're trying to make themselves happy or find happiness in their life, what they'll, they'll start to feel like as, is as if God 
is standing in the way of their happiness, as if God and the word of God is somehow an obstacle to their happiness that's preventing them from being happy, right? They'll say, well, here I am trying to make myself happy, do what feels good, and here's God telling me, don't do this, don't do that. He's got a whole book of rules about things I can't do, but I want to do those things because they'll make me happy. And some people get to the point where they say, you know what? If I really want to be happy, well, then why do I care what God thinks? Maybe I should just disregard what God says and what God thinks altogether. Maybe God's an obstacle to my happiness and I need to just not worry about what God says or, or what God thinks and I need to just do whatever feels right for myself. That's exactly what Ahab is doing here. Throughout these chapters that we've looked at the life of King Ahab, we can see that he's done exactly that. He is seeking fulfillment. He's seeking happiness through the pursuit of, well, here's, here's a few things. First, we saw him pursuing it through power and success. Then later on, we saw him pursuing happiness and fulfillment through efforts to please other people and have other people be happy with him. Then we see it in the third place now here in this section with him pursuing happiness and fulfillment through the acquiring of possessions. And listen, all of us want to be happy. And again, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not shallow. It's not weak to want to be happy. Happiness is part of God's design for us in creation. But check this out. This is a quote from the Puritan writer Thomas Manton. He said this, All people naturally desire happiness, but we do not often make a right choice of the means that may bring us to the happiness we desire. What he's saying is, Everybody wants to be happy, but not all ways of pursuing happiness are equal. Not all ways of pursuing happiness are equally effective. Not all ways of pursuing happiness are equally good. There are some times when people in their pursuit of happiness will do things that cause damage and destruction to themselves and to other people. And the pursuit of happiness, apart from God, this is, brings us to the second part of our sentence today, it leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. Let me, let me show you by pointing out what happened to King Ahab. Look at the message that God gave to Elijah to pass on to King Ahab in verse 19. You shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. God's message to him is, Ahab, there will be justice. I, I see what you did. And there will be divine judgment because of these crimes that you committed. Now listen, Ahab, he just wanted to be happy, didn't he? He just wanted to be happy. And he felt like, I need this plot of land so I can have my garden and my hobby. I need these things in order to be happy. The problem is Ahab is seeking happiness apart from God in ways that not only don't aren't going to fulfill him. We've seen that, that he's looking from this thing to the next thing to the next thing, every way desperately looking to be happy and fulfilled. It's not going to fulfill him. That's the first thing. But the second thing is he's fulfilling, he's searching for these things in ways that are going to ultimately destroy him because they set him at enmity with God. Guys, this is true in our lives as well. When you, when I, when we seek happiness apart from God, not only will it leave us empty, but it will lead to destruction for our bodies, for our minds, for our souls. Think about it like this. This is the way I like to explain it. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden 
because it's bad. That's an important distinction to make. It's not that you shouldn't sin because it's, it's, it's not bad because it's forbidden. These aren't just arbitrary rules, right? In other words, when God tells us not to do something, it's because it, he knows that it's bad for us and he wants what is good for us. God loves you guys and he wants what is good for you. He wants you to avoid what's bad for you. In the same way that you forbid and you make rules for your toddler not to run in the street, not to touch the stove. Why? Because you love them and you don't want them to harm themselves. Understand that all of God's commands are for your good so that you would not destroy yourself in body, mind, and soul. So Elijah has this message from God and he goes to Ahab and he delivers it. Check out what happens in verse 20. When Elijah found Ahab, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me? Oh, my enemy. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you made Israel to sin." And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. That's pretty serious, right? Like it's a pretty serious pronouncement of judgment. It's pretty harsh. But I want you to go back to the beginning of this section, verse 20. Okay, check out this again. When Elijah arrives to talk to King Ahab, what does Ahab say? Have you found me, O my enemy? This is Ahab, right? The murderer, the thief, the sinning king. And he looks at Elijah, the messenger of God, and he says, you are my enemy because you tell me things that I don't like to hear. In chapter 22, there, there's another interesting instance that I like where Ahab is talking about another prophet named Milkiah. And Ahab says, I hate that guy, Milkiah. Well, when they say, well, why do you hate him? And he says, because that guy always tells me stuff I don't want to hear, right? It's like the guy who says, I hate going to the doctor. Why? Because he always tells me what's wrong with me. That doctor's my enemy. Listen, friends, the man or the woman who tells you the truth in the name of the Lord that person is not your enemy. That person is your friend. That person's your friend, even if they tell you a truth that is uncomfortable or unpleasant for you to hear. Check out what F.B. Meyer, Bible commentator, says about this verse. He said this, Even though King Ahab knew it not, Elijah was his greatest friend, and Jezebel was his direst foe. See, Ahab looked at his wife Jezebel, and he thought, she's my friend because she's always affirming me. She's always telling me that what I think is right and I should do the things that I want to do. I, wanna, I want uh, to steal somebody's land and turn it into a garden and she makes it happen, right? She's my friend. No, Jezebel's not the friend of Ahab's soul. Jezebel is encouraging him towards sin and away from God, towards things that are going to destroy him and destroy his soul and destroy his life. In reality, Elijah is Ahab's best friend because Elijah is the only one who's willing to tell him to his face the truth that no one else is willing to tell him. And look, yes, you might say, but what Elijah said to him was super harsh, right? Yes, Elijah pronounces this judgment over Ahab. 
But look, throughout the Bible, whenever you see a pronouncement of judgment, that pronouncement of judgment is also an opportunity, an invitation to repent. And when you repent, you can receive the mercy of God. In other words, a a pronouncement of judgment is an opportunity to have things be different, to have things change. There's an opportunity to repent and change the course. And, And when a person repents, of course, God shows them mercy. So understand, Elijah is doing Ahab a favor by telling him this message. He's like the doctor who comes and says, listen, no one wants to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you, you're sick. And if you don't take this treatment, here's what's going to happen. And you are going to die. But the good news is there is a treatment. There is a remedy. Ahab, again, he's like the person who says, I hate the doctor because the doctor always tells me what's wrong with me. Ahab is not, um, let's put it this way. Elijah is not Ahab's enemy because he tells him the truth. Rather, he is actually the best friend that Ahab has. But let me also say this, because I think this needs to be balanced, right? And we might say, you know, telling someone the truth can be the best thing you can do for them. But I want you to know this as well. How you tell someone the truth also matters. And why you tell someone the truth also matters. It doesn't just matter that you tell people the truth. It matters how you tell them the truth and why you tell them the truth. For example, if you were to tell me, Nick, you're bald and you have one eye that's squintier than the other. Well, that would be true. But I would want to know, why are you telling me this? Are you telling me this because you know a solution and you want to help me? Because if so, let's talk, okay? But but if you're just telling me this because you're, you're, you're finding weaknesses that you can point out in order to hurt me, well, that's not very helpful, is it? You see, I, I've met people and I've known people who are very blunt to the point where they say things that hurt other people's feelings. And, and they justify that. And the way they justify it is this. They say, well, it's true. Those things I said are true, aren't they? Listen, everything you say should be true but not everything that's true should be said. Everything you say should be true, but not everything that's true should be said. How you tell someone the truth and why you tell someone the truth matters very much. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, as Christians, we're called not just to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. Listen, all truth and no love is brutality. It hurts people. But all love without truth is not helpful. It doesn't help people. Rather, speaking the truth in love, that is what a true friend does. See, the reason as Christians that we share our faith, the reason why we evangelize, is not because we want to jam our beliefs down other people's throats. No, it comes from a place of truly and honestly caring about people, caring about their souls, because we understand that the pursuit of happiness apart from God leads to destruction. Did you know that Jesus talked more about hell Then he talked about heaven. Did you know what he did? 13% of all of Jesus' teaching was on the topic of hell and the judgment of God. You say, well, wait a second. Wasn't Jesus all about love? He was. That's why half of his parables were about hell and judgment. See, Jesus wasn't just throwing that at people to make them feel bad or to have one up on them. He was talking to them because he cared about them. And he said, it doesn't have to be this way. Your story can have a different ending. Jesus loved us enough to tell us what was at stake. Because here's the deal. You cannot appreciate the fact that you need a Savior until you fully understand what it is you need to be saved from. 
Right? If I, if I give you a parachute and I say, hey, put on this parachute, and you're like, why? And I'm like, because it's cool. Just do it. You don't understand that the plane is going down, and if you don't have that parachute on, you're going to die. Right? You need to understand why you need that Savior in order to understand why that's such good news. Like Ahab, listen, many of us have pursued happiness apart from God. And not only have those things left us empty, but they have actually set us at enmity with God. But the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus took the judgment that we deserved so that we might receive the mercy and grace that we could never deserve instead of judgment. Let's, let's continue on and look at that idea. The pursuit of happiness apart from God, it leads to destruction, but humble surrender is the key that unlocks God's mercy. How do we receive the mercy of God? And who is eligible to receive the mercy of God? Well, look at what happens in verse 25. We have this kind of parenthetical statement that reminds us who Ahab was. There was none who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Ammonites had done, or Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Look, Ahab was a bad dude. He was the baddest of bad dudes. Like other bad dudes looked at Ahab and they're like, whoa, I'm not that bad. That guy's really bad. In fact, you might even say that Ahab is the baddest person in the entire Bible, right? He's the worst, most evil, most wicked person in the entire Bible. And that's what it wants to remind us of in these verses. And the reason is, it's so surprising, therefore, what happens next. Check it out, verse 27. When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring disaster upon his house. Ahab repented. After years of wrestling with God, after years of resisting God's messages to him, finally Ahab humbles himself before God and he repents. And in response to Ahab's repentance, God shows him mercy. Now listen, in the next chapter, chapter 22, Ahab does die. But when Ahab dies, he doesn't die in the gruesome way that Elijah had warned. He actually ends up dying fighting in a battle in a way that's almost heroic. He ends up fighting for the people of Israel for once in his life, doing what's in the best interest of the people, and he dies in battle. You know, the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he shows grace. He gives grace to the humble. How do you receive the grace of God? Who receives the grace of God? Anyone who's willing to do that, to humble themselves before God in surrender. Listen, if Ahab, the most wicked, most evil person in the entire Bible, could receive mercy and grace from God by humbling himself before God and repenting, then let me tell you this, there's hope for you and there's hope for me. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God's grace is available to you. You need to see that here in this story. Let me draw your attention to something. Look at verse 29. I want you to notice this. Do you notice how excited God is about Ahab's repentance? He's like, he's like hitting Elijah on the arm. Did you see that? Did you see what just happened? He's like, I can't believe it. He just repented, right? This gives us some insight into the heart of God. It shows us that God is rooting for us, right? He wants us to do well. 
It's like the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son? He goes off, he sins, he insults his father, and he's afraid to come back because he's afraid that if he comes back, his dad's going to be mad at him, resentful. He'll hold it over his head. He won't let him off the hook. He's going to treat him like a second-class citizen. But at one point he says, you know what? It's, I don't care. I'm going to go back home anyway. It's better for me. So he goes back home, and rather than his father being angry and resentful, what happens? The father runs down the road and embraces him, almost embarrassingly, right? Running to embrace his son. And he tells him, son, every day I've been looking down that road and I've been hoping and waiting for you to come home. Guys, think about how patient God has been towards Ahab. Hasn't he been patient? You know, many people have this idea that the Old Testament is all about, you know, a God of judgment and, and anger and wrath. You know what? If you really read the Old Testament, you know what it's about? It's about a God of patience. He's so incredibly patient with people in the Old Testament, people who didn't deserve that much patience at all, right? He loves people. That's what we see in the Old Testament. God loves people so much that he refuses to give up on them. He continues pursuing them. Think about it. For 10 years, God has been pursuing Ahab. How many of you would pursue somebody like this? And God does. He says, I want that guy. I'm going to keep going after him. I'm going to keep speaking to him. I'm going to keep sending him messages. I'm not going to give up on him. I'm going to keep sending Elijah to go talk to him. I'm going to keep sending him signs until he gets to the place where he responds. And finally, Ahab responds in humility and repentance. And as a result, he receives mercy. And that brings us to our final thought here, which is this. The pursuit of happiness apart from God leads to destruction, but humble surrender is the key that unlocks God's mercy and opens the door to fulfillment and joy. Do you remember what Doc Hudson said to Lightning McQueen in the movie Cars? Sometimes you have to turn right in order to go left. Sometimes you have to turn right in order to go left. Some things in life work counterintuitively. They work opposite of the way that, they, that you would think or expect that they would work. Listen, we live in a society that encourages us to think like Ahab thought, that if you want to be happy, you need to get rid of God and do whatever feels good for you, right? You need to love yourself more. You need to promote yourself. You need to protect yourself. You need to look out for yourself first. But then Jesus comes along. And he gives us a message that's, that's completely different than that. It's completely counterintuitive. It's completely different. Instead of promote yourself, love yourself, you know, do what's right by yourself, here's what Jesus says. Crucify yourself. Love your enemies. Serve others first. Forgive those who sin against you. Seek first the kingdom of God. And our immediate tendency when we hear that is to say, but, but if I do that, then I won't be happy. If I do those things, then I won't be happy. I shouldn't do those things. They won't lead to happiness, right? Is that what God wants? He just wants me to be, do those things and be miserable? And no, he doesn't. Just the opposite. God wants you to have joy. And these are the things that will actually lead to joy. Guys, sometimes you have to turn right in order to turn left. Jesus' most famous sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. And the first section of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. Now, how many of you have ever wondered, what in the world is a Beatitude? I'm here to tell you. Beatitudes comes from a Latin word, beatus, which means happy. It means happy. What, what are the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes literally 
mean the happy sayings. There are nine sayings of Jesus that all begin with this word, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. But in the original language, you know that word that in English is blessed? In Greek, it's the word makarios, which simply means happy. Jesus is showing us the way to be happy or the way of happiness. And as you look through these sentences, what you're going to see is they're completely counterintuitive to the way that people assume is the way to true happiness. And Jesus says, no, 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 trust me. This is the way to true happiness. Let me, let me walk you through them, okay? Blessed, or we could say this way, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Maybe you say, wait a second, how can you say that somebody is happy if they are mourning? Well, here's what you need to understand. The Beatitudes do not function as independent statements that just function on their own. No, they function together and they have what we might call a progression, right? They're steps that lead you to something. Step one, step two, step three. So we're going to look at these steps. Let me walk you through them. The first step to true happiness, Jesus tells us, is to admit that you are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed, happy are those who are poor in spirit. In order to be truly happy, the first step in this process is for you to realize, for you to recognize, for you to admit that you are bankrupt spiritually, that you have nothing to lay on the table before God by which to justify yourself, that you're empty spiritually and you need his help. That's the first step to true happiness. The second step, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are you who mourn. After recognizing you're spiritually bankrupt, the next step to true happiness is to weep over that condition. Don't be okay with it. Don't say, oh, well, oh, shucks, right? I'll just, I'm sure God will overlook it. No, you weep over that condition, just like Ahab wept, tore his clothes, covered himself in sackcloth, right? You recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. You mourn over it. And that is the moment when God meets you with mercy and grace. And that is why those who mourn will be comforted. As you mourn over that state, God comes in with comfort, mercy, and grace. And he tells you, you can be forgiven. Your reproach can be removed. You can be comforted. The next step into true happiness, it doesn't stop there. The next step is this, surrendering your life to God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, meekness is not the same as weakness. You know, a good picture of what meekness means. Meekness is power harnessed, power under control. Meekness is like a horse, right? A horse, pure muscle, pure strength. But a trained horse is able to harness that strength and harness that muscle and use their power to do the work of their master and do what the master tells them to do. You know who identified as meek? Jesus, all the power in the universe, and yet it was submitted to do the work and the will of the Father. It's this idea of surrendering your life to God. The next step to true happiness is to desire and pursue the truth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So after surrendering your life to God, and you commit yourself to knowing him more, to knowing his will, to knowing his heart, and to knowing the truth that he gives us. After pursuing truth. We also pursue holiness. This is another step on this path to true happiness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
See, we desire to grow and be more like God. Just as we've received mercy, we then show it to others. Just as God has been gracious to us, we're gracious to others. And we desire to get rid of the things in our lives that are dead weight, that just drag us down. You know, just as sin causes destruction, guys, holiness leads to happiness. So this is the next step. And the, the next step after this, after pursuing truth, pursuing holiness, the next step to true happiness in your life, Jesus tells us is to take up the mission of God. Take up the mission of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. You know, Jesus came, the Bible tells us, to reconcile us to God. To reconcile means to make peace between us and God, to remove the division, to remove the animosity. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we have now, as Christians, been given the ministry of reconciliation. So just as we have found peace with God through Jesus, we now have a mission, a goal, which is to help other people find peace with God through Jesus. Guys, listen, the way to be truly happy is not to spend more of your time, money, attention, resources on yourself. That's not the way to be truly happy. Jesus says, if you want to be truly happy, then here's what you need to do. Pour out your life for something that really matters. Pour out your life. Devote yourself to God's mission of bringing healing and restoration and life to the world. There is no cause in this world that is more important, that is more urgent, that actually matters than the mission of God, which is to go into all the world to bring his healing love and grace to people and societies. You know, the one thing that can heal what is broken in every part of us, body, mind, and soul, to devote yourself to the mission of God leads to actual fulfillment and real joy because you're investing your life in something that actually matters and it matters for eternity and it really makes a difference in people's lives. And finally, the, the last step that Jesus gives us in this pathway that leads to true happiness is sharing in Christ's sufferings. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when other people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, many of us tend to think that suffering and pain are the enemies of happiness, right? That they ruin or take away your happiness. But guys, as Christians, our hope, our joy, the wellspring of our joy is in Christ. It is in something that nothing and no one in this world can ever touch or take away from us. Our circumstances don't change the reality of this truth that is the fountain of our joy. And because of that, the hard things that happen to us in this life, they don't steal our happiness from us. You know what they do? They push us more deeply into the source of our happiness, which is Jesus himself. They push us into his arms when we experience hardship and trials and pain. And this is why Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 8, he says, we are more than conquerors in Christ who loved us. Why? Because no matter what happens, we win. Do you guys know that? If I suffer, it drives me closer to Jesus and I win. If I die, it drives me literally to Jesus and I win. You see, if G because of Jesus, the worst things that can happen to you in this life are also the best things that can happen to you in this life because he won the victory and he won. Therefore, we win with him. We're more than conquerors. 
You see, as Christians, even the sufferings and hardships in our lives, they don't ruin our happiness. They don't take away our joy. They push us into the arms of Jesus, and they create new opportunities for us to fulfill this mission that God has given us. And when it's all said and done, we get to experience happiness truly, perfectly, fully, and forever. In other words, the path that Jesus lays out for us here, this is a path which results in happiness and fulfillment here and now, and happiness and fulfillment forever. You know, so many of us have been led to believe that we can find happiness and joy through things that are actually the enemies of our souls. But here with King Ahab, we're able to see what happens when we humbly surrender to God, how humble surrender is the key that unlocks God's mercy and opens the door to happiness and joy. So guys, friends, may we fix our eyes upon Jesus. May we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the one who took our judgment, our reproach, our shame, the judgment that we deserved. He took it so that we could be reconciled to God. He's the one who conquered death so that we could have joy and life forever. And may we follow him on this unexpected path that leads to true happiness. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.